On this edition of the Iowa Business Report. But they struggle to repeat it because they don't know how they got successful in the first place. Your business can have the best strategy for innovation and growth, but if the right company culture is not in place, the plan can fail. National attention was focused on Pella this past week. And in our business profile, we'll learn about a company that has been building its presence in Iowa, literally, for nearly a century. This is the Iowa Business Report for the second weekend of November 2021. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. Last month, we began a series of discussions on this program about innovation within business. In this month's segment, we continue the conversation with Paul Kinghorn, Director of Advance Iowa and the Center for Business Growth and Innovation at the University of Northern Iowa, and Business Development Specialist Wes James about some reasons why innovation efforts may fall short. So, Wes, if you are starting a new business, it would seem to me, and we've talked to many businesses on this program that are rather new, one, three, five years old, and from the very start, they had certain core concepts, whether it had to do with the the workplace culture, whether it had to do with innovation. I can see how if you're starting from scratch, you know enough to build that in as a core component. How difficult is it? to take an existing business that already has a certain culture, that already has perhaps a certain mindset, and how do you get them to actually put this innovation concept, this spirit, within the core strategy? That's a great question, Jeff, and I think it's really important that we do that as a successful company is to stay relevant. I would argue, again, it's really a cultural approach. It has to come from the top leadership, and you've got to encourage trial and error. You've got to encourage people to think outside the box and to know that there's, again, a cultural support for that, that you can make mistakes, you can get outside and break things. Maybe don't do that with the main product line. Don't do that with the, the real website, but go outside that and test the limits. And again, that has to come from the top down to have that support and safety net for people to feel comfortable and confident doing that. And if you don't have that kind of cultural support, if people get punished for the first time they stray just a little bit outside the line and have a new thought, then that will be reflected because not only are people not innovative, but they're really pulled very tightly to the comfortable, safe way that they do things. And that's the opposite of the innovative culture we're looking for. Paul, how much of this is fear? In other words, if I'm running a company and you come to me and say, innovation ought to be part of your core strategy and you can't be afraid to fail and we want to reward innovation that may seem a little scary to me because i know where i'm at i'm i'm keeping the car on the road and you're suggesting that sometimes i might slide off onto the shoulder or heaven forbid in the ditch and have to recover so how much of it is fear on the part of a business owner well, there's no question that fear plays in to this equation, both all the way to the most senior level, the business owners and their senior staff, all the way down to the rank and file, the individuals that are operating within the company. And and, and by the way, this applies to the largest multi-international corporations all the way down to the startup with just a few people involved. Where's the reward? 
system, right? And this is what Wes was speaking to a moment ago with regard to the culture. If the shareholders want their return, and it's a short-term perspective, and they penalize management, and if, the, and if it's a closely held, privately held company, if the owner wants their profits, and they're not willing to experiment uh, and put things at risk, you're going to be rewarded with what you incent, right? And, and that is a culture that doesn't necessarily uh, stray outside and take big risks. The, the whole idea behind successful organizations um, isn't that they are not intentional in what they're trying to do and take uh, unnecessary risk. It's that they allow for failure and there's not the heavy-handed punishment that comes with it if something doesn't turn out well. Now, th- this is the old, you know, you did it one time, what'd you learn? Don't do it again problem, which is fine. Do it several times. Okay, we got a bit of a problem. We're not learning from our mistakes. And so we're not advocating by any stretch of the imagination that people just make mistakes or, or, or fail, but, but rather that they bake into their system ways to identify and then do it in structural ways so that you can mitigate any long-term implications from it. What a lot of people do is it's the whole, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead thing. And then they just wait until, you know, something either blows up or has magnificent success. Well, there are ways to monitor and manage it through that process so that if you identify it's going uh, a way different than what you had hoped for, you can interject, intervene and, and have some attempt to, to correct it. So, so it's not about um, recklessness at all. It's about, you know, structured and process. And, and what we find pretty consistently with the clients that we deal with is uh, a lot of them aren't familiar enough with these processes. And so they just kind of throw caution to the wind and sometimes they're wildly successful and they pat themselves on the back, but they struggle to repeat it because they don't know how they got successful in the first place or they aren't. And then they throw it out because tried that, got burned, don't want to do it again. And that, Wes, is the challenge with sustaining this, right? When we're talking about creating a culture that embraces innovation, to Paul's point, there may be some who wind up with a wild success, but they can't replicate it because they didn't pay attention in a purposeful way of how they got there. Similarly, tried it once, didn't work, never going to do that again. So really, getting the culture to embrace this initially is just one step Maintenance is very important. Maintenance is a great step to it. So culture, I, I, you've heard the old, again, another old adage, culture yep. eats strategy. strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and I, I think that's true. You've got to know what direction you're going. But if you don't have the culture where it's safe and encouraged and people are consistently doing this kind of activity that's bringing innovation into the house, it's not going to work. So I, I would say culture is the first Maintenance is second, but one way to shore that up, one of the things that uh, Advance Iowa has done in the past and continues to do is workshop and training activities with companies. Paul referenced a activity with a local manufacturer as one example. With the resources that you and I has in-house here and some of the trainings available, it's one way to help support that culture. A small investment of time with the leadership team for people in the company pays off in two ways. One, it shows the company support that it's worth an investment in that kind of thought process that the company recognizes that and supports it. But two, again, to the maintenance point, you can actually lay out a little bit of a structure in some of the processes and the thought processes and the roles that different people can play in creating an innovative process, not just the culture, which is, again, critical, 
but the actual steps to that. So think about this evolution cycle that is typical. At a startup, especially a one that, that has some innovation involved with it, right? Somebody had to be creative and come up with that, usually the founder. So we find that founders are frequently major drivers of innovation, at least initially. In fact, oftentimes through the whole arc of their ownership, they're the creative spark that brings ideas into the operation. Uh, they might solicit and bring other people in, but, but they're usually the ones that that's their passion, that's their drive, and that was their expertise. Once you identify that there's a market for this particular thing that you're doing and providing, then it's natural. And not just natural, it, it's survivability kicks in, right? How do we get efficient at doing what we're doing? And so we really look for those efficiencies. And that's where we start to bring in and, and dedicate staff to certain roles within the company. And, and that's the little eye that, that Wes was referring to earlier. How do we improve how we operate, how we do things? That's natural. That happens all the time because I've got to survive. I've got to exist in this marketplace if I'm going to uh, continue uh, into the future. The problem, however, comes when we cease to create new ideas and, and bring that uh, influence into the operation, and we're doing the same things today that we did five, 10, whatever years, in some cases, decades. And then we wonder why the market finally has caught up and surpassed us, right? We might have been unique in the marketplace, the only one, but then as competitors come on board, as new substitutes and products come into the marketplace, the customer we're dealing with has new options and choices and they move away from us. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to think intentionally so that they don't get into these feast or famine cycles where they have to reinvent themselves or have some drastic, you know, draconian approach just to stay relevant again, so that they're constantly keeping that life cycle curve on an upward trajectory, as opposed to going through its normal, you know, life cycle growth, maturity, decline, and then may or may not survive, you know, into the future. Paul Kinghorn, Director of Advance Iowa and the Center for Business Growth and Innovation at the University of Northern Iowa, and Business Development Specialist Wes James. We'll continue the dialogue on business innovation and growth again next month. Still to come, creators in Pella and a construction company that calls Iowa one of its homes. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa. Leading successful business, transitions, growth, and innovation. More at AdvanceIowa.com and search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook. Support for the Iowa Business Report also comes from Iowa History Journal. The new November-December issue features stories on legendary educator Phoebe Sudlow, 175 years of Iowa statehood, and a cyclone who ran Monsanto. Get your copy at Fairway, Hy-Vee, and at iowahistoryjournal.com. This past week saw the National Creators Wanted live tour come to Pella. It's an effort designed to provide young people with demonstrations and hands-on experiences to give them an idea of what manufacturing and creating really means today. It includes a 53-foot traveling multi-room immersive experience, showing that manufacturing has a place for anyone with rewarding opportunities in the field. Pella was chosen as one of the national stops 
because of the strong record demonstrated by the Vermeer Corporation and Pella Windows, both headquartered there. The head of the National Association of Manufacturers, Jay Timmons, and of the Manufacturing Institute, Carolyn Lee, were both on hand. You've heard both on this program before. A special morning event was held this past Tuesday that included Governor Kim Reynolds and other Iowa manufacturing and business leaders. As one who attended, I can tell you it was quite an impressive show. Join us for a special edition of this program in two weeks, Thanksgiving weekend, when you'll hear my conversations from the site with Jay Timmons, Carolyn Lee, and Governor Kim Reynolds as we talk about manufacturing in Iowa and the rest of the country and how the U.S. can recapture market share that has been lost over time. That's Thanksgiving weekend here on the Iowa Business Report. Coming up, localizing a national construction company. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented by the Iowa Waste Reduction Center, devoted to environmental consulting, assistance, training, and education for entities with environmental impact or need. Online at iwrc.uni.edu. The Iowa Business Report is also presented by TotallyIowa.com, a website dedicated to Iowa topics books, DVDs, CDs, radio programs, and more, all at TotallyIowa.com. In this week's business profile, we meet Zach Lloyd, Iowa Business Unit Manager for Turner Construction Company. Their Iowa office is in West Des Moines, but their history in our state dates back to construction of the iconic Hazen Water Tower at 48th and Hickman in Des Moines back in 1930. Turner Construction is a professional construction management and general contracting company. We were founded in 1902. One of our first projects was the subway station stairs in New York City when it was first constructed. And so we have a a really rich history. We're well known for pioneering reinforced concrete design. So we were the first company to put rebar in concrete. But we really expanded from there. We've become a national company. I think what's unique about Turner is that we invest in all of the major communities that we build in by putting in a permanent office. And so we have 46 offices across the country. One of those happens to be right here in Iowa, in West Des Moines. We officially had our business unit here for the last three years, but we've been working here in Iowa since the 1920s. So We have a really exciting and growing business here in Iowa and glad to be here and investing in this community. So you've got a century of experience with some very well-known projects in Iowa and now with an actual physical plant office with a staff right here. I mean, that really shows a commitment to this trade area. Absolutely. The company, you know, having worked here since the 20s, we always felt good about Iowa, but um, we've had a consistent presence here and consistent projects here since about 2013. And The more our people started coming to Iowa, bringing their families to Iowa, sending their schools here, they didn't want to leave. And we continued to hear that from our staff. We love it here. We don't ever want to leave central Iowa. And as a company, we listened and we decided we were going to invest here. We were going to plant a flag and permanently invest in central Iowa. We're now up to 180 salaried staff here in central Iowa and 65 trade craft employees. So we're growing. It's exciting. And um, really glad to be here. 
Well, you're growing, and it's exciting, but this is also a really challenging time, not only for businesses generally coming out of the pandemic to be your customers, but you've got supply chain issues with regard to materials, do you not? Talk about what these last couple of years have been. Yes, we certainly have unprecedented times from a supply chain perspective in all industries, and certainly the construction aspects of that are close to what we do every day. So, you know, everything from whether it's challenges with deliveries due to backed up ports or factories that are shut down, much of which is due to the pandemic, but some of it is driven by Mother Nature and the state of Texas and some of the ice storms that we've had. It's put extra emphasis on the work that we do prior to starting our projects. And so during our pre-construction and planning processes, we have to spend an extraordinary amount of time developing that list of long lead time items, as we call them, and identifying the risks for where we could have impacts on the job. And sometimes that causes us to really rethink the sequence of how we build our projects. And it also kind of really forces some creativity with us and our design partners and our clients. Of, I know we've always talked about this particular material, but here's a couple of others that could achieve the same thing in a different way and avoid some costly delays. And so we have a lot of those conversations every day here at Turner. It's really a matter, and I suppose what little I know about the construction industry, you're always coming up with something that might be unanticipated. It might be supplies. It might be something that because of topography doesn't work out the way you thought it would in the plans. And so you've always got this give and take with the client. It's just maybe shifted a little bit now with regard to some of the things that we used to take for granted. Yeah, I mean, I always tell folks that we're interviewing, what's the most important thing? We're really problem solvers. And if we can be problem solvers with client service at front of mind uh, each and every day, we're going to have successful projects. And I think most of our partners and clients understand the environment that we're in. And so we all have an open mind. But as long as we all roll up our sleeves and work together to a common goal, we can figure out how to get projects done successfully. Now, what separates your company, Turner, from others that might either not be national in scope, might not be as large based in Iowa, et cetera? What is it either about mindset or company ethos that sets you folks apart from others? I think what I would say is that we offer clients the accessibility and support of a local firm that's locally invested, but with the stability, resources, and expertise of a national firm. And I think that that's a little bit different. That's something we can bring that's different to Des Moines. And the fact that we really invest in, in our communities is a little bit different than maybe some of the other larger national companies. How has construction changed during the time of your career alone? I get a sense that materials are a little different. Client demands in terms of if they're a little more environmentally friendly, that may resonate with employees or with their customer base. So how have things changed in the past, let's just say, 20 years? There's a lot that's changed. And so there's a lot to unlock there. But the two that stick out to me, you know, when I started my career, everything was on paper and especially a large project. You had rooms and rooms in the job office just dedicated to stacking up drawings and and specification books. And now everything's electronic. Not only are the plans and specifications and our approach to the project electronic, but we build the building in three dimension with a computer long before we ever show up to the job site. And we work out so many issues up front that it really makes the process for building much smoother and quicker, but it also presents opportunities to prefabricate major sections of the building. 
which helps you build in a more controlled environment, a safer environment, reducing injuries, providing a better workplace, better environment for our staff. So my stereotype of a job site is somebody, you know, they've got a board on top of a couple of sawhorses and they roll out these big blueprints. Do you still do that or are they all looking at laptops and tablets these days? Yeah, it's everything's on tablets. Everything's electronic. <laughs> wow. um, all of our trade partners, we think about the electrical foreman on the site. They have a tablet with the three-dimensional drawings for exactly how that project goes together. In many cases, they'll have supply chain access for where that next part or piece is. As an example, let's say the electricians are working in a section of the building. They may call that zone A, and they know that zone B is coming in two weeks they can go right into their tablet and start queuing up zone B materials right now. And they can see where that's at in the prefabrication process back at their shop. And they know exactly what day it's going to be delivered to the site. And then they can walk that tablet right out to exactly where that piece goes and know exactly where to put it and how it should be installed. And it's, it's amazing how, how much things have changed in the last 20 years. It takes, you've mentioned the safety, but it also takes a lot of the need for adapting on site out of it. It takes a lot of the guesswork out of it because you've already done the modeling and then you can put that into practice. That has to make you much more efficient on site. No doubt. That greatly increases efficiency. It also increases quality control. And as you mentioned, hugely impactful for safety. Less waste. That means we have less things laying around on the floor. Slips, trips, and falls are one of the biggest safety hazards on construction sites greatly reduce that by keeping a clean job site. Zach Loy, Iowa Business Unit Manager for Turner Construction Company, online at turnerconstruction.com. We spoke via Zoom on Friday, November 5th. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.